May you be blessed in your journeys tonight. Mike and team, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Tonight, we are honored by our sister. There she is. Come on over here. Tonight, Jill will be sharing her testimony of Christ. But I want you to know that you share it every single day. Every single day I see him in you. The teacher in you, the kindness in you, the compassion in you. There's so much God in you and your life testifies all the time. You're a testimony to me. So I thank you. (laughs) I thank you. Wow. This is not the way I want to start off. I'm going to start crying right at the beginning. Well, that was my hope. (laughs) No, thank you so much for your ministry in this body to the people, for the way that you love them, for the way that you pour out your life for them. So if you will extend your hand and let's bless her tonight. Father, I thank you so much for our sister. I thank you, Father, for your anointing in her life. I thank you, Father, for the way that you have covered her. Father, for the way that you have redeemed every single moment in her life. So, Father, thank you you for the testimony that you've given her. Thank you for the graces. And Father, cover her tonight. Let her words be yours, Father. Release her in the deep wells. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you. Thank you. Barbie said something very key that I want you to remember before I even begin, that God has redeemed every single moment of my life. And, and yours too. But since this is my turn, we're going to talk about me. <laughs> no. And to keep me from, um, you know that movie, what is it, Up, where the dog goes squirrel, you know. Uh, that's me. And I, I run on many rabbit trails. So I'm going to keep bullet points. I'm going to hold them to keep me in task. Otherwise, we'll be here till 10, and we don't want to do that. And can we turn the lights down just a hair so I can see faces? Is that possible? I can't see anybody. Um, well, uh, first off, I'm the child of three. I'm the youngest. My, I have a sister that's 12 years older than me, and I have a brother that's two years older than me. And, um, and for those, I don't want to ever assume everybody knows me, so I want to let you know that we have a son that is 24 years old. His name is Case, and we have a daughter who's 18 years old, and her name is Jenna, and she's in Australia right now serving in, in, uh, for YWAM. And I'm married to Steve Grossman, who's one of the elders here at the church. Uh, You know, I probably came out of the womb singing. And I was always singing. My dad always kidded around with everybody. I don't remember this at all, but I have family that attests to it, that we we grew up in the Lutheran church. And my dad always told everybody I was going to be the first Lutheran nun because I always sang spirituals all the time. I don't know where, I don't recall any of this. I walk around going, you're kidding, you're kidding, you're kidding. Really? You know, me? But apparently I did. And um, I loved God. I didn't know him, but I loved him. I was intrigued by him. You see, in my house, the way I grew up is, is church was an institution. And it was to be respected. But God lived at Fifth and Elm in the church there. And, and God was the God of Sunday mornings. And he was to be respected, but there was no personal relationship. I didn't understand that at all. But he always sought me, and I was always intrigued by him. And I found this. Oh, let me stop here. I had, a, I had, a, I had something prepared. I worked real hard on it. And at 4.23 this morning, boy, don't you love those digital clocks? 4.23, the Lord goes, trash it. We're starting over. I want you to pull this, I want you to pull that. And I'm like, oh, 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 okay. So up, 423, I'm up looking. I found this. This is probably the oldest thing I own. And this was given to me in fifth grade. It's a little Bible in school. I got a Bible in elementary school. Hey, times have changed, haven't they? It's the New Testament and the Psalms and Proverbs. And I was looking at it this morning. It was given to me January 19, 1970. This, I I thought, this was like the Holy Grail. I have the Bible. Wow, this is cool. And then I opened it up and I tried to look and read, and it's thee, thou, though, this. And I'm like, okay, ooh, wow, that must be holy language, you know. And 
I don't know how to speak that, so I'll put it over here. But I thought that was kind of like a, oops, excuse me, like a show and tell, you know, show some things. But anyway, the story I do want to tell is that I do remember, and I think I was, I, I, can't, I think I was in high school or right out of high school. I can't remember. But my, I was helping my mom clean out some cabinets, and we came across a Bible. Well, I didn't even know we owned a Bible. And I, it was a real old Bible. And I thought, holy smokes, this is a holy Bible. Wow, this is cool, Mom. And I opened it up, and she said, yeah, it's from your grandmother. Which one? You know, because I don't remember my grandparents. And I vaguely remember my dad's mother, and it was from her, his side of the family. And inside the Bible, there was written marriages and baptisms and, and uh, deaths and... and um, Oh, I think that's it, that I go, a birth. And, and I thought, that was really cool. And then we put it back. And that's where the Bible stayed. And I thought, okay, well, that must mean we're a Christian family because we own a Bible. You know, I guess I assumed God would look down on heaven and the Bible would be the honing device, you know, and he'd go, okay, that's a, that's a Christian, you go to heaven, that's a Christian, you go to heaven. You know, the how, we were known by houses. I, I thought that was what you Christians do. We own a Bible, that, therefore we were okay. We were all going to go to heaven. Um, and I don't mean my family, I don't want to dishonor my family, I don't want you to hear that. They were brought up with it being an institution. There was not a personal relationship. And my mom was brought up uh, Irish Catholic, and my dad was brought up Lutheran. And um, my mom appeased my, their parents to get married in a Catholic church, and then she was done. She, she said no, and then we were raised Lutheran. And um, I think the only reason I had some church in my life is because my sister, we moved from Chicago to Lubbock when she was a senior in high school. And my parents wanted to make sure she got in community. So they understood community and to be around good moral people. And my parents raised me pretty moral. But um, we went to church for her social need, really. And I, and I remember some of church... Um, but, but as I got older, you know, we fell away. Church, I think we went to church on Easter. I don't even think we went on Christmas, but I think we went on Easter. And Sunday mornings when I was little, church meant I got to wear a pretty dress and go to lunch with the family. That's what Sundays were for me. I do believe with all my heart, and I, I know we've talked about this before, that we're born into a war. There was a war that happened around us. Scripture says, you know, we war against principalities and spirits. Not, we don't necessarily war against flesh and blood as much. Okay, well, we are born into a war. And I understand the war. Because the enemy does come to kill, steal, and destroy. And Jesus does come to bring life and bring it to the fullest. But let's, let's go negative for a minute. Because a lot of the beginning of the war... It's funny that I use this term because I, I wasn't even thinking about the Oscars this week with the American Sniper, but I was thinking Sniper. The enemy is snipers. And he's out there and he's pow, pow. And he'll take you out in areas that probably you should be strongest in. So the first attack, I want to say, the first sniper hit for me was, well, it, the, it was... Intelligence. Intelligence. Somewhere along my young life, I, I don't know if there were too many blonde jokes, and I make them, but I don't know if it was, you know, brother relationship or what, but I kind of carried that maybe I was a little less than, couldn't quite figure out. And I, this teacher, I was in the fourth grade, and I remember this really well. And this teacher, she probably got ahead of herself and wasn't thinking and got her mouth engaged before thought, but we were in reading groups. I was in reading class. And uh, we, had, we were in three groups. Group one, group two, group three. I was in group three. And she was trying to make a point to the class, to encourage the class and motivate the class. And she said, and you don't want to be, and I was standing up, and she goes, you don't want to be the slowest reader like Jill. I stood there, and I remember going, oh, I don't like that feeling. But then I sat down and thought, okay, well, she's the teacher she would know. I must be stupid. Sniper, pow, number one. So I carried that. The fallout of that is that I didn't read a book until, books, plural, until I was 36 years old. And I didn't know, we found out a few years later, I'm mildly dyslexic. I have issues there. When a little traffic cop gets confused a little bit. And we have to go slow and work that through. 
That's a challenge. We overcome the challenges. But when you don't know, you don't point somebody out. But that was, she was used to take me out. But this story I love, and I have to tell the story because it really is funny. So the reading teacher was also my math teacher. It was still fourth grade, and I thought, terrific. You know, now I've got math. And um, not very good at math either. And we were working at a um, contract level where you, you work at your own pace, so you grade yourself something. I don't even remember what it was. But anyway, and I wasn't about to be in the slowest math contract. Oh, no way. So I cheated, and I got caught. And I got sent to the principal's office. Oh, man, you know? So I'm sitting outside the principal's office, Mr. Johnson, and I'm, you know, waiting for my mother. She got called, and, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, I'm gonna giving my dolls to Becky, and my record collection's going to go to Beth, because, you know, it was over for me. I thought, oh, my gosh. And here comes my mom, and she walks in, and I kind of look at her, and she kind of just looks at me and kind of keeps going, and the door's right here. She stands there, and she gets ready to knock on the door, and she stops, and she puts her hand on my shoulder, and she gives me one of these, and then she knocks. And I thought, wait, that's a, it'll be okay, pat. Wait, what, what? I'm not dead? Wait, what? You know, and she goes in, and she closes the door, And all I'm going to say is that the whole office got quiet and everybody stopped typing and my mom went crazy. I mean, she absolutely went crazy. And she went off on the teacher and she got on to the principal and I mean, all all sorts of things. I couldn't hear everything, but boy, it was powerful. And she walked out and she goes, you ready to go home? Oh, yeah. And so we went and went home and we talked and I said, how did you, you know, because I, that had been stewing in me for a few days, what had happened. And she was at the grocery store, and she ran into a mother. And the mother told her, well, how's Jill? How's Jill doing after what, you know, Mrs. Moulton said? And my mom's like, what are you talking about? And apparently her daughter came home and was mortified. Why wasn't I? Because I had already decided, well, I'm, I'm stupid. I'm really stupid. And there's another time in my life where the enemy took me out. When I was talking to a man, I was an adult, I was already married to Steve. And I'm telling you the story for a point, for a reason. And I'm uh, at this get-together, this party, and I'm, and I'm talking, so they brought up a story about Jesus. I remember that. And I remember having a conversation with this man about Jesus. And it, was a, it wasn't anything heady. It was just kind of a conversation. Next day, I call my girlfriend, see how the, part, you know, the rest of the party went and how things were. And I said, well, I enjoyed meeting your friend. And she goes, oh, yeah, he enjoyed meeting you too. And I said, he did. He goes, yeah, but he said you had zeal without knowledge. And I go, oh, wow. Again, I shouldered that. And for years, Steve will even attest to it. He'd ask me opinion of something, and I'd go, yeah, I know, but I don't have any knowledge. And he'd go, you do so. Oh, he was so frustrated with that. But it took a while. And I say that to say, we have to sit down and be careful and think about it, be proactive and think about it. What has been spoken over us and what are we shouldering? What are we owning? You know, what are we carrying that is a lie? And we all carry a lot of those things because they come at us real subtly, but we're being taken out. We're being sniped out. Well, I find it really funny that I'm, you know, and I'm going to use the word teaching. You know, Barbie and I have gone back and forth. I have a real issue with that word because it probably goes back to this. I'm not a teacher. You know, I've, I've so avoided that word. But I'm teaching a Bible study on Monday nights, and I'm still work. It still gets stuck in my tongue, teacher. <laughs> you know, but I'm. That's who I I am. I love the Word, and I'm not stupid. I'm quite intelligent, but I'm. You know, I had a little dyslexic. I go at information a little differently. It has nothing to do with intelligence. So, just a little thing there. The other thing. <clears throat> that is the hardest to talk about, but the most necessary, is when you go back to John 10.10, the enemy comes to kill. All right, kill the part of me, that intelligence thing. I had to work on that for a long time. Steal. All right, now he's going to steal. At the tender age of 12, somebody I trusted very closely to our family, a man sexually violated me. 
He stole something from me. Everything shifted in that moment in time. And I didn't speak up. I couldn't. I babysat for him. And he drove me home. And he said, you want to drive? What 12-year-old doesn't, right? Want to steer? So I sat in his lap. And the abuse began. Your mind races. Everything comes, it's like, it's like a matrix moment. Everything just slow motion, but you're, you're in real time. It's, it's the wildest experience. And there actually is a chemical change in your brain. Everything from that moment in my life changed. Everything changed. He took something from me. And I had to work on forgiveness. And I do forgive him, because he didn't have power over me anymore. And he was close to my family, and I couldn't tell my parents. There's something intuitive inside of me that kept me from telling them. They weren't safe people. They wouldn't understand. They couldn't control this. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because so many of you deal with this and you don't say anything because the knee-jerk reaction is that you think it's your fault. I lived with that most of my life. Oh, it must have been something I wore. I did borrow a pair of tight jeans from my girlfriend, Beth. That's the first thought that came in my head. It's my fault. It's my fault. And then it happened a few other times in different incidences. And then there was a time when I was in my early 20s where something happened to a young woman that should have never happened to a young woman. I should have pressed charges. But I didn't. My self-worth was nothing. That moment in time back when I was 12 robbed me of everything and be able to stand up for myself. So I was taken out completely. It was stolen. There's so many of you that live with that shame. And you don't have to live with that shame because we live, sadly, in a sexually perverted society. So it's happening over and over. But you have to bring it to the light. Because what I also did is I thought I could handle it myself. Big mistake. But it was the only step I knew. Going back to the incident when I was 12, I waited until I timed it to when I knew he would be home. And I kept calling, for call waiting, right? Wife would answer, yes, he was married. Wife would answer, hang up. You know, and then I kept calling until he answered. And all I said is, you ever touch me again, I'm telling my parents. And he said, okay, and I hung up. I thought I handled it. Well, all of us have a file. I call it file 13. We shove it right here. I can handle it, I'm good. I'm good. And you can function within the growing dysfunction. Have you ever, um, you ever tried to run in a pool? You know, you're running. You're running. You're just not doing it very well because you have uh, your, something's in your way and it's inhibiting your function, really. Well, that's the way I was living my life. That's the way I lived my life. High school, I always had a guy I liked at another school. I always, so I could go to the slumber parties and feel all the butterflies and you he he because he was he was way out there. I didn't have to have anybody close to me. I feel like my whole high school experience was the shell game. Oh, smoke and mirrors. Woo! Joe was the cheerleader. Joe was busy. Joe was in drama. Joe was this. Don't touch me. Hey, I'm untouchable. I'm I'm seen, but don't see me. And that was all because of that moment. Let me pause for a second. The good news in high school is I found Jesus Christ. I went to a Young Life retreat and I got to see stars, real stars for the first time. Really cool. Because I lived in the city. And I got out in the country, I was blown away at the stars. And I accepted the Lord in October of 1975. But the point here is, I wasn't in a church. And the saying is, The body can live without the big toe, but the big toe can't live without the body. So I fell away, withered away. It was just natural. Went back to my old ways of thinking I could handle everything. Well, as time was building, and I was about 19, and oh yeah, I went to college, but I did drop out because, well, I was stupid, right? Didn't think I I had it. I could make it. I, um, as a young adult, my dysfunction wasn't fun anymore. Took the fun out of dysfunction. And I was about right here. 
Well, when you get right here, you can't breathe, right? So my world began unraveling a little bit. And I was working as a singing waitress at a dinner theater. So the job was, you know, you, you bring drinks and clean up their buffet tables and stuff before they see the play. But I was in the pre-show. We did all the pre-show stuff. So when I didn't work the floor, I still had to be there for the show. I had to do, we had like a 30-minute, you know, show. And a friend of mine that I really wanted to get to know, guy friend, that I really wanted to get to know, was, um, invited me to go see this movie about the rapture. I didn't even know what that word was. And I said, okay, sure, yeah, I'll go. Some movie. And I go to watch it, and I said, now I have to leave in the middle of it because i got to go to the show. He said, okay. So I go and I watch this movie, and it's long before the Left Behind series, and I don't know who put it out. I just, all I know is I walked out of there. My foundation was shook. I mean, I just, I went, oh my gosh, what is wrong with these people? What, I'm going to find out now that I've lived this life, I've done the best I could, and now I'm going to be left by myself when everybody's been taken to heaven? Kind of like I'm outside of the club, if you will. I'm not worthy anymore. And I was angry. Oh my gosh, I was so angry. I felt betrayed. So I get to work, and it's the only time in my professional career in an entertainment way I couldn't pull it together. They thought somebody had died. They thought my parents had passed away or something. Something devastating had happened. I couldn't pull it together. I sat and cried through the whole little song and dance thing, and I'm crying because I was shaken. And then they said, what's the matter? And these were some of my friends that, were, that told me they were Christians, and I was rude. I don't want to talk about it. I'd shut them down. I don't want to talk about it. You hear me? I don't want to talk about it. Don't you even mention Jesus' Jesus's name to me. That's a bunch of hooey. Forget it. No, I don't want to talk about it. Went on for nine months. And I just, I mean, I would, I would put you off. I was really rude. I had a really good friend of mine that was a Mormon. And I went to see her at Brigham Young. And I spent a week up there. Oh, these guys, they're great. They're great. They love you. That it is, it, they are friendly. Everybody wants to get along and they care about you. And I'm like, wow, this is really okay. I was hungry. I needed something like this. And I was with Linda the whole week and I was really toying with the idea. This sounds like something I really need. And it, I have to leave the next day. It's three o'clock in the morning. I've got like this round table of people trying to talk me into just signing this thing and we'll go to the tabernacle in the morning or something. And I just couldn't quite make that step. I so wanted to, but something kept stopping me. Oh, Jill, don't. Don't deny Christ. Don't, don't make that step. And I just kept going, well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Let me think about it. Uh, so, okay. So I don't get any sleep. Linda gets me up late. We're running to the airport. And back then, this was like 1978, 79. And you know how when you get on at the airports now, you've got these accordion things that connect you to the to inside the plane. Well, back then they were just stairs and they just connected you to the plane. And I, we are so late and I'm running, I am tearing through the, where they had the two planes, two American Airlines, boom, boom. And they had the, the, the stairs. And I'm running, I'm going, which plane? And Linda goes, that one! And I mean, there's, they've got the engines going, oh, you're late, I oh, know, and I'm running up the stairs, and they close, and there's, they've got some sort of inside chaos going on. And I sit down, and we're good. I'm tired, I'm emotional. I sit down, we get up there, we hit the cruising altitude, and they say, the sky's in Denver, Colorado. And I go, Denver? I don't want to go to Denver! And this, these poor little, you know, salesmen turn around. They go, what, honey? And I go, oh, I want to go to Dallas. I don't want to go to Denver. Oh, no. And the stewardess, oh, she, how did you get on the road? Did you not check her? I mean, there was total chaos. I was on the wrong plane. I was going to Denver. And I was mortified. So I, you know, we finally settled me down. They give me a little seven up, you know, and I said, all these, all, I just remember all these people had white shirts and ties. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I was coming apart. So I get in the Denver airport and I pull myself together and they finally, we get it all straightened out because it was their mistake also. And they put me on a plane to Dallas and I'm all settled and I sit down, they give me a window seat and I sit down in the window seat and this guy sits next to me and it was kind of a crowded plane. And so anyway, I'm looking out the window and we're hitting the cruising altitude, all's well with the world. And so I look over and I'm like, so 
what you reading? Just trying to start, st- strike up a conversation, and he goes, oh, I'm reading about the rapture. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I had nowhere to go. I was like, oh, oh. And, and he could tell. I was. I was just rude. I was all fearful, and he was really calm. And he just, he goes, I guess he could tell I was just really upset. And he said, um, why are you so upset? I said, I don't want to talk about it. And he, and he just took a deep breath in this really nice, calming voice. He said, you know, he said, I'm coming back from my brother's funeral. And he said, and I have such peace because I know where he is. And I just was quiet. And he goes, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe he's your Lord and Savior and he died for you? Just as calm as could be. And I go, well, yes. That's it. You have nothing to fear. That's it? That's it? Oh. Okay. Okay then. And I was, I thank God I didn't betray my Lord. Thank God he got me out of there. I love that little story because he just put this little guy's little calming voice. So I get off the plane and my brother's standing there waiting for me and he's like this. He goes, so are you a Mormon? What? You know? <laughs> no, I'm not a Mormon. Only as a brother could do, right? So anyway, let me keep going here. Um, I eventually joined a band in, a, in, in Dallas. It was a very popular band and we played at lots of clubs, lots of clubs. And um, we ended up playing this one place, it was uh, like a pub. It was something that wasn't for, it was like a college place. We didn't play places like that. We played real nice uh, dance hall, dance places. We played listening clubs, but I guess we needed the work. So we booked six weeks into this uh, thing called Chelsea Pub. And at this time, I had begun some counseling. I had sought the help of a counselor because I could tell, I, my thought process just wasn't, wasn't right. And I was damaging my voice singing night after night after night and trying to compete with the DJ on the break. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for coming out. And then I'd be singing, you know, all night long. And I ended up getting vocal nodules. But here's one other thing, another ugly part of what happened when I was 12, is that about 67% now of sexually abused cases end up being bulimic. And I dealt with bulimia. It had taken over my life. And I was damaging my voice. And it had such control of me. And it was such an odd thing. I dressed to the hill. I mean, people would like, oh, Julia, it's so together. Oh, you are so great. I wish I were you. Round, round, round. I'd go, oh, thank you so much. And I'd think to myself, you have no idea what I'm getting ready to go home and do. You have no idea how much I hate myself right now. And I'd just smile, you know. And I had to see a vocal pathologist. I chose not to go to surgery. I chose to get go through focal therapy. And she was really neat. And one day, I guess you could hear the hit and miss of how I was processing my thoughts and where I was. And she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, Jill, you have so much to offer. You need to get some help. You need to get some help. You just need some help straightening things out. So I did. And that was a, I just started that. And the reason I prefaced that, now I'm back to the pub. We're working this place. It's the last night. We're all breaking down now. And I had noticed the six weeks we were there, there was a cocktail waitress that was much older. This was like a college place. A young, you know, my age, 21 at the time. She was about 35, 36. She stuck out like a sore thumb. And I went, "Mm, okay, something's going on here. But, you know, I didn't have many words to her. Smiled, hi, you know, pleasantries. She came up to me at the end of that and she said, my car's in the shop. Can you give me a ride home? And I said, absolutely, no problem. So I left, we got in the car, and of course, you know, I'm too curious. So I said, "Um, okay, I have to ask you something. And she said, sure. And I said, you stick out like a sore thumb. And I said, obviously something's going on in your life, because you wouldn't normally work here. And are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. And we pulled into the parking lot, and she said, I'm divorcing my husband because he's been sexually abusing our 12-year-old daughter. And I'm devastated. And I don't know how to reach my daughter. And she started crying. She goes, I don't know what to do. My life's unraveling. And at that moment, I had a waterfall moment. At that moment, I was the perfect person to talk to her. 
I was the only person in her life at that time that could talk to her. I had experienced that. I had empathy for that situation, and I knew what was going on in her daughter's head, and I could offer hope, and I could offer help. And I, everything shifted for me at that point. I thought, oh, I can get on top of this. This doesn't own me anymore. Ah, okay, this is good. And I was, that was a real important moment because I, the ashes, the ashes started going into beauty. I can give you life and give it to the fullest. It was starting to turn. Met Steve in 85 and read our blogs. You know all about our, our stuff when we, when we, about our marriage. We won't go into that too deeply, but I, I knew what kind of drummer he was. I really wanted to play with him, and I had a chance to be in a band with him, and, um, uh, and I did, and he was in another relationship that was really bad, and, <clears throat> and we, he'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks, I'm sure, and um, so we became friends, and we talked a lot during breaks, and then he finally, finally got rid of her, and um, no, I kid, I kid, but, um, and then we, he asked me out on October 1st, and October 26th, we were engaged, and February 10th, we were married, three months later, and we'll be married 29 years next month, so I'm very excited about that, yeah. Steve is truly, Steve means crowned one, and he really has been my crowning jewel. He has redeemed a lot. The Lord has used him to redeem a lot for me um, through him, and he honors me, honors me every day. Barbie wanted us to talk about tools, and this is where I get excited, because there's, a, there's tools. I, I think of my life, when you look back and you give your testimony, and you kind of, you know, the saying is 2020, um, wait, what is it? Hindsight's 2020. And you look back and you kind of go, oh, I get it, okay. Well, I look back and I see, man, I was just blissfully ignorant. I just, you know, I love the Lord, didn't know the Lord, got rocked a little bit here and there, but always kind of sought back to the Lord. He intrigued me, and I really wanted to get to know him. And at the time, I had found a church, by the way, while I was with this band in Dallas. I, I had found a church, and I was starting to grow, and I was starting to read the Word. And I got so in love with the Lord, I would bring the Bible to work. Now, my place of work was a bar. And I sat, I would get there early. We worked Tuesday through Saturday and I'd get there and I'd open the Bible because I just kind of wanted, I was really into what I was reading. And I'd sit over there on these high tops like what we have out in the well over by the bar and I'd be reading and just, you know, probably James or something and reading and enjoying before we uh, started playing about an hour before. And these, <laughs> these poor salesmen would come up. Hey, with the gin and tonic. Hey, hey, how you doing? I'd say, hi, you know, and they'd go, what you read? Oh, what you, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was really funny. Great, you know, repellent. If you don't want somebody to talk to you in a bar, bring a Bible for crying out loud. Does it every time. And the other memory I love is that when we sang a bunch of top 40 songs and my worship time was love songs. To this day, endless love is a worship song. I love taking secular music and turning it into a worship song. God will meet you there. And it was, I looked forward to my worship time. It was, that was, those were sweet little memories in my I was blissfully ignorant. I just walked through that and I just laugh about that. But anyway, in 1989, Steve and I were, uh, rented a house. And we, I, we ended up buying it, but really we were given it. The landlord came to us and he said, hey, um, Jill, he knocked on the door and he goes, can I come in for a second? I said, sure. And Steve was here and and he goes, look, I got to get the house off my credit line. And he said, so I really want you guys to buy the house. You all have taken such good care of this house and everything. And I go, oh, (laughs) honey, get the checkbook. Sure. Yeah, right. We were musicians. We had no money at all. We were just starting out. And, and he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, I'm going to use your, your eight months of rent as, as a down payment. He's going to do it all on paper. But he wanted to give us the house. I'm like, wow. And that same year, we paid off the car from a windfall or something. And there were all sorts of little blessings. And I thought, you know, I need to write this down. I need to write this down. And I didn't have anything to write it down on except an old cash book that we had. And this is my blessing book. And to this day, we're on blessing book number two. I write down blessings 
that the Lord's given us. These are stones of remembrance. You know, when Joshua took the nation across the Jordan, they built stones of remembrance. Why? So they would never forget, but also because a generation earlier had already forgotten that the Lord had parted the Red Sea. And you think to yourself when you read these stories, what is wrong with these Hebrew people? My gosh, look what the Lord did. We're the same way. We're the same way. And I found something as I was looking through this, just a little excerpt. I was writing a bunch of stuff in here. And just this little paragraph, it was, I wrote it in 1994. It says, I'm taking this time to write in here because someday... I may need to be reminded how God reminded me he's still here. And this is precious to me because at this moment in time, my dad had just died. You see, my dad and my mom both were terminal at the same time with two different diseases. That was a, I got to tell you, that was a, that was a hard season. Hard season. Steve had just gotten a record deal with Epic Records with his band. His life was taken off this way. I had momentum in my singing and recording career. Things were going good. I had plans. And my dad came down with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And if you're not sure what that is, that's what you did the buck ice bucket challenge this summer. That was all for that disease. That is a horrific disease. It is a motor neuron disease that destroys all your muscles. It can either start from the bottom up or the top down. My dad started from the bottom up. The only thing it doesn't affect is your eyes, your ability to move and see, and your ability to know what's happening to you. It's the complete opposite of Alzheimer's. So one day you can use your arm, and the next day it's gone. And eventually the cause of death is suffocation. It's a horrific, horrific disease. And I had a, a neurologist, I went to a, a, a muscular dystrophy meeting, and a neurologist stood there, and he goes, about all the diseases I have ever seen, he said, this is the worst I have ever seen. It's awful. You have about a three and a half year, three to five year lifespan, depending on how healthy you are. And so, life was in crisis, and then a year later, almost a year to the day, my mom collapsed. It was five till 12, cowboy game was coming on, she was making a sandwich for dad. She was coming in the living room to give dad a sandwich. And she thought, dad thought she tripped. So did she. She tripped, fell, sandwich went in dad's lap, and she fell into the seat. And she had had a tumor that had, that had uh, ruptured in her brain and caused a stroke at that moment in time. Five after 12, life changed for us completely. She had kidney cancer. And cancer had made its way through the filtering system. So... Mom had six months to live. So in the umbrella time of my dad's diagnosed and death, my mom was diagnosed and died. Family in complete crisis. Nobody lived near them. That was a hard season. And Steve's life was going this way. I couldn't even hold on to it. I was slipping away. I had to be pulled back down to this. And I don't regret it. I don't regret it, but it was really hard to let go of your music career and everything. It was like holding sand. It just fell apart. So that blessing book was important to me because there were many blessings during that season, about a three and a half, four year season. But also, the other tool was journaling. I learned to journal. Now let me talk about that real quickly. Journaling is real important. And if I was to die tomorrow, I would die a happy woman because my family journals. Case and Jenna journal. And so does Steve. The importance of journaling is huge because life is very busy. And it's really hard to develop that discipline to focus. And if you have a hard time in your prayer closet, you know, and you might be a mother, a young mother, and your baby is crying, and you're, you're going to go there. Right? You're going to go there. You're not going to pray. You're not going to have time. You're going you're to take care of that. Or if your phone's ringing or whatever distraction. If you can't find that, journaling is a way to bring in your prayers because you're writing them. You're focusing. You're able to praise. You're able to pray. And maybe document where you are. I think I had five full journals by the time this thing was over. Kept them for six years. 
reread them and went, I don't even know who she is anymore. I was so far past that person, which was fine. It served, my, it served its purpose. But journaling is very, very, very important. It helps develop that discipline. That discipline to bring you into prayer. It's not, it's not instead of prayer, but it's the step to discipline to pray. Bible studies. Bible studies. I love Bible studies. I love to study the Bible. That's another tool. You know, devotions are good. Highly recommend them. They make you ponder. Utmost forest highest. Streams in the desert. Those are great. Those are great. But don't just read devotions. Because devotions are someone's take on Scripture. They give great information. But it doesn't allow the Holy Spirit to teach you about what the Holy Spirit's trying to teach you about that. And some people look at devotions almost like a horoscope. What's God going to say to me today? We have to be careful of that too. You know, they're there to keep us, again, it's a tool to help you get back into the word, and that's real important, but also maybe read the scripture references that they're referencing and read past that. Read onward. You know, and it's very, and why do I say that? You need to get into the word and read the word or get a, into a Bible study because scripture can be taken out of context to serve and manipulate the person's need. If you don't know it's being taken out of context, you're just a puppet. You have to know. Why do I say that? Because there's going to be false prophets. Scripture says that. We have to know that. How are we going to know that? If we don't know the truth. We have to know that. That's very, very important. Um... And we need to know, we, under, we have to understand context of Scripture too. Uh, also, again, so you can understand if it's, taken out of con, if it's taken out of context, you'll understand, wait, okay, it says that, but hold on. And I remember Rodney uh, Boyd said something about that a few years ago, and I really appreciate him saying that because that's really true. We, and, and Pastor Bruce talks about that. We have to take, we have to understand context or you're going to be lied to. We have to also allow the Holy Spirit to teach because the Holy Spirit reveals. This is my second waterfall moment. I was 1998, I don't know, Jenna was two, I don't, I don't remember. Anyway, and I'm, we're reading in Genesis, and we're reading about the flood, and we're reading about Noah. I never knew the rainbow was the promise. Somehow that particular piece of information escaped me. I knew the rainbow was important. I thought it came from God. You know, life just went kind of fast. That was huge. That was huge for me. Now, I know some of you are like, wow, Jill. But no, that's true. I did not know. It did not make that connection. That that was God's promise. And science can explain it away. Well, that's a reflection of light and blood, you know, and then the pot of gold, the little elf thing and all that. But, But it's God's promise. And when I learned that that week... I think it was two days later, we had a rainstorm and there was a rainbow. And I just stood out there and I just looked at it. I went, wow, we, this is you from back there. And back in Genesis, you're still, wow, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the colors, have you ever stopped and looked at the colors of a rainbow? They're God's colors. God talks about the throne room of God and the colors. Those are the colors he uses. Ah, it just gets me all excited. Scripture is so real. The Bible is real. It's full of real people who lived in real time. You know, the Old Testament stories are so important. They're so important to our understanding and deepening of the New Testament and Jesus' teachings and the parables. He'll say things that will be great, but they'll be so much deeper when he references a feast or, or, you know, references something in the Old Testament and you go, oh, that's so cool because I just studied that in the Old Testament and you just go deeper. Every time you go into the Bible, you go deeper and you go wider. It's so great. The story of Joseph. You know, I think Pastor Bruce talked about it. If you didn't know the beginning and you didn't know the end, you would have thought, wow, Joseph, I'm telling you, tough life. But there's a purpose there. So the story of Joseph is to give us hope that there's a purpose. When you're going through dark times, there's a purpose on the other side of it. Abraham. Oh, man. Now, I know now, Father Abraham, 
I know Father Abraham did not go, yes, God, I'll take my family and we'll just go. No, I'm sure he was like, no, I can't. I'm my dad. I'm sure there was an argument between him and his dad. I'm sure there was stress, but eventually, and same with Isaac. You know, I'm sure there was anguishing tears. We read it and we think, oh, he's so obedient, which is, yes, he is. But I'm sure being human and having walked a faith walk for a little while here, there's anguish. But the point is you eventually anguish yourself right back to your knees and open up your arms and go, okay, your will be done. My king, my savior, sovereign God, just and mighty, have your way. But there's a wrestling match because we're human. You need these Old Testament stories to help you. Hebrew nation, wilderness journey. I remember when I was reading that, I was like, now they want quail? Man, these guys don't appreciate anything. You know, Steve and I are walking a faith journey right now. Lord has been very faithful with manna. I do understand the quail. Can we do, can we, can we get off the edge here, please, Lord? I'm so tired of cliff dwelling. I'm tired of being on the cliff. But he's been faithful. And he's trying to do something. He's transforming. So I cry and I pray and I wring myself out. And then the endorphins hit in. And then I'm able to go, okay, your will be done. The band wants to come up. You can. I'm starting to finish now. God is always transforming us. We are always in process. I'm coming into empty nest syndrome. You know, oh, the kids don't need me. No, they need me. I know this is all my head. But it's different. It's changing. It's transforming. So my walk's going to change too with the Lord. And we are all broken to some degree. And that's okay too. Because there's redemption, like Barbie said. We did a marriage conference back in last year, back in April, and Joel Olstein said something, and I loved it. I have written it down, and I carried it with me because this epitomizes all of us. It epitomizes the church. It epitomizes lives, lives redeemed. He said, we're all broken pieces, but together we make a beautiful mosaic. And that's what we are. We're a beautiful mosaic. We are redeemed. But we have to be able to say, that we're going to take our lives and we're going to make them, we're going to take the ashes and we're going to turn it to beauty. Because God gets the glory. God gets the glory. I wish my life wasn't so sad in those areas. I wish I had, you know, a happier life. In the most part it was. I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid in spite of everything. But God uses these things and I recognize that now because so many of us are hurting. So many of us put on our Sunday best and our best smile, good morning, and they're coming apart. And you're hurting so bad. But you need to know if we're going to truly be spring house with living water, living drench, then come drink the water. Come be redeemed. Come start again. So I'm going to ask some of the leaders to come up maybe and pray. See if someone wants to come up and pray. Because you're hurting. And God wants to redeem that. And that step of obedience is very important. We're going to sing a minute.
Holy name, we pray this prayer to you and this blessing to you.